Chapter Sixteen of Mary Louise and the Liberty Girls by L. Frank Baum, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Mrs. Charleworth. When Mary Louise reached home that evening, she was surprised to find a note from Josie which said, "I've decided to change my boarding place for a week or so, although I shall miss Aunt Sally's cooking and a lot of other comforts. But this is business. If you meet me in the street, don't recognize me unless I'm quite alone. We've quarrelled. If anyone asks you." Pretty soon we'll make up again and be friends. Of course you'll realize I'm working on our case, which grows interesting. So keep mum and behave. I wish I knew where she's gone. Was Mary Louise's anxious comment as she showed the note to Grandpa Jim. Don't worry, my dear," advised the Colonel. Josie possesses the rare faculty of being able to take care of herself under all circumstances. Had she not been so peculiarly trained by her detective father, I would feel it a duty to search for her. But she is not like other girls, and wouldn't thank us for interfering. I'm sure. I can't see the necessity of her being so mysterious about it," declared the girl. "Josie ought to know I'm worthy of her confidence, and she said just the other day that we're partners. You must be the silent partner then," said her grandfather, smiling at her vexed expression. "Josie is also worthy of confidence. She may blunder, but if so, she'll blunder cleverly. I advise you to be patient with her." Well, I'll try, Grandpa. When we see her again, she will probably know something important," said Mary Louise resignedly. As for little red-headed Josie O'Gorman, she walked into the office of the Mansion House that afternoon, lugging a battered suitcase borrowed from Aunt Sally, and asked the clerk at the desk for weekly rates for room and board. The clerk spoke to Mr. Boyle, the proprietor, who examined the girl critically. "Where are you from?" he asked. New York," answered Josie. "I'm a newspaper woman, but the war cost me my job because the papers are all obliged to cut down their forces. So I came here to get work. The war affects Dorfield too, and we've only two newspapers," said the man. "But your business isn't my business in any event. I suppose you can pay in advance for a week, anyhow," she returned. "Perhaps two weeks. If the papers can't use me, I'll try for some other works. Know anybody here?" I know Colonel Hathaway, but I'm not on good terms with his granddaughter Mary Louise. We had a fight over the war. Give me a quiet room, not too high up. This place looks like a fire trap. As she spoke, she signed her name on the register and opened her purse. Boyle looked over his keyboard. Give me forty-seven if you can," said Josie carelessly. She had swiftly run her eye over the hotel register. Forty-seven is always my lucky number. It's taken," said the clerk. Well, forty-three is the next best," asserted Josie. "I made forty-three dollars the last week I was in New York. Is forty-three taken also?" "No," said Boyle. "But I can do better by you. Forty-three is a small room and only has one window." "Just the thing," declared Josie. "I hate big rooms." He assigned her to room forty-three, and after she had paid a week in advance, a bellboy showed her to the tiny apartment and carried her suitcase. "Number forty-five will be vacant in a day or two," remarked the boy as he unlocked the door. Kaufman has it now, but he won't stay long. He's a suspender drummer, and he comes about every month, sometimes oftener, and always has forty-five. When he goes, I'll let you know so you can speak for it. Forty-five is one of our best rooms. Thank you," said Josie, and tipped him a quarter. As she opened her suitcase and settled herself in the room, she reflected on the meeting in Casker's store, which had led her to make this queer move. A fool for luck, they say," she muttered. I wonder what intuition induced me to interview Jake Casker. The clothing merchant isn't a bad fellow," she continued to herself, looking over the notes she had made on her tablets. He didn't make a single disloyal speech. 
hates the war, and I can't blame him for that, but wants to fight it to the finish. Now the other man, Kaufman, hates the war, too, but he did not make any remark that was especially objectionable. But that man's face betrayed more than his words, and some of his words puzzled me. Kaufman said, at two different times, that the war would make him money. There's only one way a man like him can make money out of the war, and that is by serving the Kaiser. I suppose he thought we wouldn't catch that idea, or he'd been more careful what he said. All criminals are reckless in little ways. That's how they betray themselves and give us a chance to catch them. However, I haven't caught this fellow yet, and he's tricky enough to give me a long chase unless I act boldly and get my evidence before he suspects I'm on his trail. That must be my program, to act quickly and lose no time. Kaufman saw her when she entered the hotel dining room for dinner that evening, and he walked straight over to her table and sat down opposite her. Met again, he said with his broad smile. You selling something? Brains, returned Josie composedly. Good. Did Jake Casker buy any of you? I've all my stock on hand, sir. I'm a newspaper woman, special writer or advertising expert. Quit New York last week and came on here. Wasn't New York good enough for you? he asked after ordering his dinner of the waitress. I'm too independent to suit the metropolitan journals. I couldn't endorse their gumshoe policies. For instance, they wanted me to eulogize President Wilson and his cabinet, rave over the beauties of the war, and denounce any congressman or private individual who dares think for himself, explained Josie, eating her soup. So I'm looking for another job. Kaufman maintained silence, studying the bill of fare. When he was served, he busied himself eating, but between the slits of his half closed eyes, he regarded the girl furtively from time to time. His talkative mood had curiously evaporated. He was thoughtful. Only when Josie was preparing to leave the table did he resume the conversation. What did you think of Jake Casker's kind of patriotism? he asked. Oh, the clothing man? I didn't pay much attention. Never met Casker before, you know. Isn't he like most of the rabble, thinking what he's told to think and saying what he's told to say? She waited for a reply, but none was forthcoming. Even this clever lead did not get a rise out of Abe Kaufman. Indeed, he seemed to suspect a trap, for when she rose and walked out of the dining room, she noticed that his smile had grown ironical. On reaching her room through the dimly lighted passage, Josie refrained from turning on her own lights, but she threw open her one little window and leaned out. The window faced a narrow, unlighted alley at the rear of the hotel. One window of room forty five, next to her, opened on an iron fire escape that reached to within a few feet of the ground. Josie smiled, withdrew her head, and sat in the dark corner of her room for hours, with a patience possible only through long training. At ten o'clock, Kaufman entered his room. She could distinctly hear him moving about. A little later, he went away, walking boldly down the corridor to the elevator. Josie rose and slipped on her hat and coat. Leaving the hotel, Kaufman made his way down the street to Broadway, Dorfield's main thoroughfare. He wore a soft hat and carried a cane. The few people he passed paid no attention to him. Steadily proceeding, he left the business district and after a little while turned abruptly to the right. This was one of the principal residence sections of the city. Kaufman turned the various corners with a confidence that denoted his perfect acquaintance with the route. But presently his pace slowed and he came to a halt opposite an imposing mansion, set far back in ample grounds, beautifully cared for and filled with rare shrubbery. Only for a moment, however, did the man hesitate, just long enough to cast a glance up and down the deserted street, which was fairly well lighted. No one being in sight, he stepped from the sidewalk to the lawn, 
and keeping the grass under his feet, noiselessly made his way through the shrubbery to the south side of the residence. Here a conservatory formed a wing which jutted into the grounds. The German softly approached, mounted the three steps leading to a glass door, and rapped upon the sash in a peculiar manner. Almost immediately the door was opened by a woman who beckoned him in. The conservatory was unlighted, save by a mellow drift that filtered through the plants from a doorway beyond, leading to the main house. From behind the concealment of a thick bush, Josie O'Gorman had noted the woman's form but was unable to see her face. The girl happened to know the house, however. It was the residence of Dorfield's social leader, Mrs. Charleworth. Josie squatted behind that bush for nearly half an hour. Then the glass door opened and Kaufman stepped out. By the way, he said in a low voice, it's just as well we didn't take Kasker in with us. He's a loud mouthed fool. I've tested him and find he blats out everything he knows. We do not need him since I've decided to finance the affair, returned the woman, and Josie recognized her voice. It was the great Mrs. Charleworth herself. Mrs. Charleworth, in secret confidence with Abe Kaufman, the suspender salesman. Then Josie experienced another surprise. A second man stepped through the shadowy doorway, joining Kaufman on the steps. It seems to me, said this last person, that there is danger in numbers. Of course, that's your affair, Kaufman, and none of my business. But if I'm to help you pull it off, I'd rather there wouldn't be too many of us. It's a ticklish thing at the best, and shut up! growled Kaufman, suspiciously peering about him into the darkness. The less we talk in the open, the better. That is true. Good night, said the woman, and went in, closing the door behind her. I think I will light a cigar, said Kaufman. Wait until you are in the street, cautioned the other. They walked on the grass, avoiding the paths and keeping in the darkest places. Finally, they emerged upon the sidewalk, and finding the coast clear, traveled on side by side. At times they conversed in low tones, so low that the little red-headed girl, dodging through the parkings in their wake, could not overhear the words they spoke. But as they approached the more frequented part of the town, they separated, Kaufman turning into Broadway and the other continuing along a side street. Josie O'Gorman followed the latter person. He was tall and thin and stooped a trifle. She had been unable so far to see his face. He seemed, from the turnings he made, to be skirting the business section rather than passing directly through it. So the girl took a chance, darted down one street and around the corner of another, and then slipped into a dim doorway near which hung an electric street light. She listened eagerly and soon was rewarded by a sound of footsteps. The man she was shadowing leisurely approached, passed under the light, and continued on his way, failing to note the motionless form of the girl in the doorway. Josie gave a little laugh. You're a puzzling proposition, Professor, she whispered, and you came near fooling me very properly, for I imagined you were on your way to Washington, and here you've mixed up with another important job. End of chapter 16. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.